Good evening. Regular viewers of this programme will know I have been railing against vaccine mandates. The idea that those that work in care homes or work in the NHS have to have the vaccine or they lose their jobs. And I do it because it's become increasingly clear to me as the months have gone by that regardless whether you've had one, two, three or four jabs, you still can catch this virus and pass it on. In fact, there are some that think you're actually more likely in some ways to catch the virus if you have been triple jabbed, but less likely to get seriously ill yourself. Now, we last week had a bit of an exclusive here because we had the doctor, Steve James, who, along with seven of his colleagues, was taking the government to court over the NHS vaccine mandate. 127,000 full-time and part-time workers in the NHS would have lost their jobs on the 1st of April. But last night, and I know that yesterday's news was dominated by what happened in the House of Commons with the Sue Gray report, but this would have been the main news story. It was Sajid Javid in the House of Commons last night backing down in a very significant way. I believe that it is no longer proportionate to require vaccination as a condition of deployment through statute. So, Madam Deputy Speaker, today I am announcing that we will launch a consultation on ending vaccination as a condition of deployment in health and all social care settings. Right, so there we are. That was him basically backing down, doing it gently, but I think we can pretty much say that those 127,000 NHS workers are not going to be kicked out of their jobs on the 1st of April. But the care home sector has already had this applied to them. It happened back in December. Now, we've been trying really hard to try to find an accurate estimate for the number of people who've lost their jobs working in care homes. We can't find one. But somewhere between 35 and 40,000 people leaving the sector appears to me to be the right number. And so what I'm asking tonight is if the whole thing with the NHS is being put on pause and then scrapped, Surely, shouldn't those who've lost their jobs in the care sector get their jobs back? Because the alternatives aren't very good. Already the sector, as I understand it, was struggling to recruit people. I've heard reports over the last couple of weeks that people have been brought in from all over the world, upon whom we perhaps cannot make the same stringent checks to make sure they're right to work in care homes. And the outrageous proposal by the immigration minister that those that have crossed the English Channel in dinghies a year after they've arrived here with their asylum claims still not processed, that they could go and work in the care home sector. All of that is outrageous. I think the 40,000 should be reinstated. And that is my audience question to you this evening. Should those workers be reinstated? I want to get your views, please. Farage at gbnews.uk. Well, joining me to discuss this is somebody directly affected by it. It's Jeremy Richardson, Chief Executive of Four Seasons Healthcare, one of the UK's largest independent healthcare providers. Jeremy, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Now, as I understand it, you've got 12,000 staff, 165 care homes. You're one of the biggest companies in this sector. Um, how many staff have you had to let go because they've not had the vaccine? Well, just as you found it really difficult to get to the number of how many people have left the sector, it's really hard for me to give you a precise number too. I can tell you that we fired 56 people on the 11th of November. 
but those were the 56 who'd stayed right to the end of the process. What we estimate is that about 150 further members of team had left before that because they, they weren't going to take the vaccine and there was no point in them staying right the way through to the end of the process. So 200 people out of about 12,000, so 1.6% of our workforce we think we lost as a consequence of the vaccine mandate. OK, and on the face of it, that's a relatively low number, but I'm sure that it's impacted your business. How did you, I mean, as a healthcare provider, how did you feel about the concept of a vaccine mandate? Well, before I answer that, let me just correct one thing. I mean, it's not an insignificant number of people because, as you said at the beginning, that the, 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 the staffing levels in the sector are already low. So we already had a 10% vacancy rate across our workforce. So if you overlay another 1.6% on top of that, then it just adds insults to injury. It makes it harder to run our care home. And to answer your second question, I never felt that a vaccine mandate should have been put in place. I thought it was the wrong thing to do at the time. I still think it's the wrong thing to do. And ultimately, I think the consequences that, that it has brought upon us are worse than the actual risks presented by the virus itself right now. Interesting. And why was the care sector chosen? I mean, were you effectively the guinea pig for what they were going to do with the National Health Service? Well, it's hard to argue against that, isn't it? I mean, interestingly, at the beginning of the pandemic, the, the health secretary made the point that one of his frustrations with social care was he didn't control the sector, and yet he did have direct control over the NHS. Now, ironically, the part of the, the healthcare service that he decided to impose a vaccine mandate on was the bit that he didn't control. Uh, and I would suggest that was because it's run by professional companies such as ours, and we were able to deliver or had to deliver effectively uh, a mandate that was imposed upon us. Why he hasn't then gone ahead in the NHS is uh, is anybody's guess, but, but the reality is it's difficult to say we were anything other than guinea pigs, yes. Yeah, well, that's very much how it appears to me. So is it time, Jeremy, for this to be reversed? Would it make sense for Sajid Javid to say that, you know, as part of, and he's, he's kind of backing down gently by saying we're going to look at it, but is it time? Should you as an industry now put pressure on Javid to allow these workers back? Well, my understanding is that he's suspended the mandate. Whether, whether that means it's gone indefinitely, I think, is a question that we should explore in just a second. But he's, he's suspended it. So therefore, as of, as of now, uh, that vaccine mandate is not in place. And therefore, anybody who lost their job should be able to reapply and come back into the sector. Uh, and, and as somebody who desperately wants really good quality people to come back into care, then I would welcome anybody who's lost their job or indeed anybody else who wants in, who wants to come into social care to apply and we would look uh, we would welcome them with open arms provided they provide the, provided they get through the right check so would you just go ahead now and take people back on or do you want some clarity and direction to come from the health secretary no we need clarity obviously we we, we need the detail behind the statement but my understanding is that the vaccine mandate is suspended and therefore it isn't a condition of deployment in social care okay that's interesting and jeremy when it comes to your staff you know, you do screening, you do face-to-face -face interviews and assessments. Uh, they have to go through the DBS security checks. And you do all of those things. And, 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 you know, those people that entrust their family members to your homes would want you to do that. I, and I have to say, and I don't want you to comment at all on cross-channel migration. I'm not, not going to draw you into that. But the idea that we would allow people into the care sector who'd arrived on our shores with no proof of identity and therefore no means of checking. I mean, that surely would go against all of your principles. 
Well, look, I mean, you made the point earlier, Nigel, the governments have made a couple of statements over the course of this pandemic that they probably wish they hadn't made. You know, Matt Hancock at the beginning of this pandemic claimed that he put a ring of steel around care homes when he did quite the opposite, when he discharged people into care homes. Yeah. And, and the comment that I heard the other day about uh, a potentially using migrants, I rather discounted, I didn't take it seriously. Because as you said, the reality is we are one of the most heavily regulated sectors yeah. in the country, quite rightly, because we look after the most vulnerable people. So anybody who comes into social care needs to go through the appropriate vetting program. They need to have a, a legal right to work in the UK. They then need to go through a DBS disclosure barring service process. And then they have to go through, in our case, all of our internal checks and processes as well. And that applies to anybody wherever they come from. And we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't undermine any of those processes for anybody. No, absolutely. And finally, Jeremy, um, is this a ray of hope? Is Sajid Javid's statement last night a ray of hope for your struggling sector, struggling in terms of staff? I really hope so. I mean, I think that the one thing I would say is that he caveated his comments by saying that he reserved the right to return to them should the situation change. And, and I think if I was one of those people contemplating coming back, in, back into care, and I would welcome all of those people to reapply, uh, the one thing I would want to know is that this is going to be the position and it isn't going to change going forward. I don't think it's unhelpful. I don't think it's helpful for us as a sector to be faced with uh, the risk of potential changes again hanging over the top of us. It would be much more helpful if we had a degree of certainty and the government stuck to the position that they've now taken. Absolutely. Well, Jeremy Richardson, thank you very much indeed for coming on and giving us those words today. Well, joining me now, live from South London, is Caroline Abrahams, who is the charity director at Age Concern, which is the largest charity in this country looking after the interests of our older population. Um, tell me, I mean, how does Age UK feel about this now really chronic staff shortage in care homes? Oh, well, good evening. Um well, we're really worried about it. Um, it's it's one of the biggest problems facing social care because a lot of people who need social care need one-to-one -one intensive support. And if care homes or home care providers haven't got the staff to provide that, that's a real problem. And so I'm pleased about the decision that um, Sajid Javid's made because the really big worry was that if he'd pressed ahead, that lots of people who are currently working in home care, that's the sort of care where people come to your own home, that quite a few of those would then have quit. And they've already got something like, you know, one in one in eight of their jobs are vacant and we really can't afford any more people to to walk away. So so I think it was the right decision and the right decision for the NHS as well, who are also, of course, coping with really big um, staffing shortages. Yeah, but when you hear the argument, Caroline, and it's been made repeatedly over the last six months or so, when you hear the argument that, you know, the older members of our society are the ones most likely to have underlying medical conditions for obvious reasons. Therefore, they are the most vulnerable to this virus. The argument gets made that if staff have had the double jab and the booster, the argument is made that then makes the patients they're looking after safer. How do you respond to that argument? Well, I actually agree with what Mr Javid said in your clip. Um, he was pointing out that the balance of risk has changed during the pandemic, and I think he's right. So now with the Omicron variant, we know, thankfully, it's less, it's less lethal for older people. Um, so therefore, I think having a jab is less important 
um, now than it was earlier on in the pandemic, uh, when undoubtedly with the, with all the risks of the earlier variants, it, it really was important for people to have jabs. And I'd like to say that at AGK, we're very pro people having their jabs. And yeah. uh, I've certainly had all of mine. We were never very pro the idea of trying to force people to do it because we thought it wouldn't work. And, you know, I think the, the facts have rather borne us out. I think more encouragement, a bit more carrot and a bit less stick would have would have been more sensible. But we are where we are. Yeah, no, no, I can fully understand why you would encourage 90-year-olds to have the jab, but we were talking here in terms of the vaccine mandate about fit 22-year-old young men and young women uh, who really were at very little risk from the virus. So will you join the call, Caroline Abrahams, will you join the call for the government to give some clarity to the care home sector and to allow these up to 40,000 people to go back to work? Well, I think having clarity is absolutely crucial because right now... Care home providers like Jeremy, who you were talking to, aren't clear what the employment rights are of these people who left. You know, actually, do they have a legal right to return? Um, so that's got to be clarified very, very quickly. I think the reality is a lot of those people will have gone off to other jobs. They'll have gone either to work in home care, where at that stage there wasn't a requirement to have the jab. And we know many people are leaving to go, you know, when, when Amazon builds a, a warehouse, opens a new warehouse in an area, lots of care staff go and work there because it's better terms and conditions. That's part of the issue here. So I, I fear that an awful lot of these people have already gone into other jobs and won't particularly want, want to come back anyway. But, you know, if they do want to come back and if they've been good staff, completely understand uh, Jeremy's point of view. We want as many good people as we can possibly get working in social care. It's so yeah. important for older people. Thank you very much indeed, Caroline Abrahams from Age UK. So look, you know, there are two people there directly involved in this issue. Uh, there is a huge staff shortage within the care home sector. The idea we can make up this shortfall with people coming from all over the world where we can't actually check their bona fides is complete and utter madness. Coming up in a moment, Austria from today makes the vaccine mandatory. I'll be talking to a resident in Vienna and I'll ask just how divisive this is. Should those 40,000 care home workers get their jobs back? I certainly think they should. What do you think? Well, Chris says to me, Chris says to me, not just reinstated, but compensated too. They will have lost earnings and self-confidence. Chris, I agree with that, although I'm slightly worried that Caroline Abrahams seems to think many of them may have found other jobs. One viewer says, of course they should. It shouldn't even need to be asked. They have done nothing wrong. Yes, they have. They've disobeyed the Prime Minister, who told us all to get jabbed and get boosted. Richard says, no, as they are putting residents at risk. Nobody is talking about the residents here, just the staff. If I believe that argument... If I believe that argument, I would support vaccine mandates in the care sector and in the NHS. I just don't believe that argument. And regular viewers will know I've asked doctor after doctor, scientist after scientist to actually prove to me that by me getting the booster, I'll be less likely to catch COVID. And nobody, but nobody has convinced me of that. They have convinced me, I think that by having the vaccine and the booster, if I do get it, I'm likely to get less ill. But that's a choice for me. It's not going to affect those around me.
Another viewer says, no, otherwise, where does it end? Two weeks is all it takes to train another, yet you've got to find the people. Phil says, yes, and compensated for their freedom of choice being taken away. Now, taking this to more ludicrous levels, as we're beginning in this country, I think, to win the argument for freedom of choice, as the big state backs off, as Plan B uh, restrictions are eased and the pubs and restaurants start to fill up over the country and a bit of confidence comes back. In some countries, they're going the other way. Uh, the state of Western Australia, New Zealand, but closer to home, is in Austria. I, I mean, I, I, I've said when it was announced that Austria were going to bring in mandatory vaccines. I said at the time that I thought they'd actually bitten off more than they could chew, but they've carried on with it. Well, joining me now is Eric Williamson, freelance journalist based in Vienna, Austria. Good evening to you. Good evening. So they've done it. As of now, it is mandatory to have a vaccine. And I understand that the Austrian police, uh, within a few weeks, will have the powers to stop people, ask for their vaccination status to be proved, and be able to find them up to three thousand euros. That, Eric, is my understanding of it. Please tell us what's going on. Well, I think you've uh, given a pretty accurate summary of uh, the situation as it is of this week here in Austria. As you said, the government announced back in November that they were going to put, uh, put in this measure to have uh, a, a vaccine mandate. Uh, many people thought, you know, let's see if this actually is going to work. You know, there were a lot of uh, obstacles to take politically as well as legally, but they've done it. And as of this week, uh, it is mandatory to uh, to get your vaccination, to get your jabs against uh, against COVID. Like you said, um, just in a couple of weeks only, the checks will start uh, as of mid-March. People are actually in danger to, uh, to be fined if they cannot prove that they have got their vaccination at that moment. Later on, uh, the fines will become higher and could potentially reach uh, the amount you just mentioned. Uh, the first fines will be about 600 euros, and that's, uh, I think, a lot of money for people. And that could maybe, uh, people have, have not been sure whether they should get it or not. Maybe that's just uh, enough to put them uh, over this border, you know, to get them to get finally the, uh, the, uh, the vaccination. And what percentage of the Austrian population at this moment in time have not had the vaccine? Well, that's an interesting question, because at the time when the government decided to put this measure in place, as I said, back in November, it was only 65%. And also were really among the, the countries in Europe, in Western Europe, with the lowest vaccination rate. Meanwhile, we are about uh, 72, 73% of the people are, who have been fully vaccinated. And that's actually not, not far behind uh, when you compare it to the neighboring countries like Germany, uh, which is many times the, the country also compares itself to. Of course, it's, it's way lower than countries like Spain or Portugal. But, you know, we're not that far behind as we were back then. So um, people are really questioning whether this, uh, this measure is as necessary as it seemed to be a couple of months ago. And another factor that comes into play is back in November, when the government decided this, it, was, it wasn't sure that what Omicron, I think, didn't even exist. We didn't know it was there. And we certainly didn't know what the extent, uh, you know, what the influence was of this, of this new variant. And just like you said before, people will still get 
the infection, will still contract the virus, the Omicron variant, even if they have all their vaccinations, even if they got a booster vaccination. So people say, well, why should I get why should I have to get my vaccination when I can still contract the virus? And that's definitely a new point that has, uh, that has, uh, you know, that has surfaced compared to a couple of months ago when the initial decision was taken to put this measure in place. Eric, it is still just about within living memory uh, when Austria was living under the harshest form of authoritarian rule uh, that we've ever seen, in, certainly in modern times anyway. Where is the opposition to this modern-day authoritarianism. Where are there... I mean, we've seen, we've seen, as I said earlier on this programme, we've seen a big step back from the government here. We've got truckers who basically brought Ottawa to a standstill over the weekend in Canada. Where is the civic or political opposition in Austria to this authoritarianism? Or are people just accepting it? No, people are definitely not accepting it. I think Austria has been one of the countries where the protests have been uh, the most firm, so to say, actually from the start of the, the, the pandemic uh, two years ago. People were taking to the street here in Vienna. Every Saturday we have marches of 40,000, 50,000 people just protesting against these measures, which they felt back then was already uh, too much uh, interfering with their uh, freedom. And since, of course, the, the vaccination mandate, which, is, which goes way beyond any measure that has been in place before, these uh, protests have become, even, um, have become even stronger. More people are joining these rallies. Even people have got their vaccination. They're still opposing to the fact that other peoples will be... Uh, they have to get this compulsory vaccination. People just don't like the idea of being forced into getting the vaccination. The only yeah. problem with these marches is that uh, these have been uh, kind of hijacked by right-wing parties, by extreme right-wing uh, parties, and uh, that's the reason that they got a little bit in a, in a, in a bad, you know, in a, in a bad perspective. And people have really judged them, I think, for the wrong reasons. Because I think it's fair, you know, to stand up for your rights, for your personal rights, and say, you know, okay, I don't agree with the vaccination. People are taking it a step further and start comparing it, like uh, you know, this, this is like going back to the, to the Second World War. I think that's, that's just uh, many steps too far. But the Freedom Party in Austria is often described as being right-wing or hard right-wing, but it is still, or it's been in the past, a very significant political force within Austria. Um, are they the likely beneficiaries electorally of all of this? Uh, yes, well, that's, that's, that's potentially what's going to happen. You know, the Freedom Party was in the Austrian government until two years ago. Then it was a huge scandal which forced him to, uh, to, to step out of the, of the government. Um, and that, that in, in all opinion polls, they went way down below 10%. And now you see that they are getting uh, a lot of support again. Uh, people, you know, they're just choosing this party again, not, uh, not because they're agreeing with all their opinions they have on, on, on migration and other, other topics that are uh, very important for the, for the Austrian society. But on this topic, yes, I think, I think they will win a lot of people again yeah. just for this reason. And you see that, uh, that the, the leaders of this party, they are really the, the front runners of these marches every Saturday. They, you know, they, they go on the stage and they talk to the people and they really fire them up you know, to protest against these, uh, against these uh, firm measures of the, of the government. Well, I've, I've, been I've had double vaccine, um, Eric Williamson, but if I was in Austria, I'd be out marching for freedom of choice too. I really would. Not politically, but just for freedom of choice. We're going to follow up with you in a couple of weeks' time to see what's going on in Austria. Thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you. Now, some may remember 
In 2014, the Rotherham scandal broke. It was child sexual abuse on a scale that I think we found almost difficult to believe, hard to actually read or see the news report, so stunned were we by it. We learnt that much of it was the fault of the police force for not actually dealing with a problem that they knew existed for fear of being branded racist. After Rotherham, we had Rochdale, Oxford, many, many other similar child grooming atrocities, and I'm going to use that word, had taken place in Britain's towns and cities. Yet the news has gone incredibly quiet on the subject, so perhaps many of us thought it was a problem that had gone away. Well, a new report, independent report, in a childhood sexual abuse uh, that has been out today actually uh, perhaps gives us even greater concern. Well, joining me, somebody that understands more about this than I do, David Greenwood, a leading child abuse lawyer who has represented victims of abuse in Rotherham. Thank you, David, for joining us this evening. Um, I just made the point in the intro that when that Rotherham story broke, I mean, I think the country was absolutely stunned at the scale of it, at the number of men that were involved in it. Um, from what I understand of this report, the suggestions are that it's just as bad as it was, but perhaps happening in different ways. That's exactly right. Um, and I share your feeling. I was stunned. Um, having worked in child abuse since the mid-90s, um, I had assumed that the police had been dealing with these this type of street exploitation. Um, and in 2013, when I was presented with the facts in Rotherham and spoke to um, support workers there, I couldn't believe it myself. Um, so, um, yeah, it was difficult to uh, appreciate. And it's um, we've realised that it's happening in every town and every city of the country. Um, so this inquiry um, was convened to try and work out not just what happened in Rotherham and, and Rochdale, Oxford, uh, but what's happened all over the country and what councils and the police have been doing. And it has found that um, the councils and the police are not gathering enough uh, data, so they can't work out who's doing what and where. Uh, they don't know the, uh, the ages, where it's happening, the ethnic background of perpetrators and uh, of victims. Uh, whilst they uh, appear to be working together in all areas, um, much improvement can be made uh, to target uh, the perpetrators um, and to protect the victims. Uh, the inquiry uncovered um, a culture of victim blaming, um, describing girls as putting themselves at risk. Um, and there was uh, there was there were comments in in records that girls were engaging in child prostitution, which obviously you know. No, no child can can um, can consent and engage in that kind of thing. Uh, so, um, yeah, that the inquiry has found a, a lot of failings, um, uh, and has made some recommendations to beef up um, the deterrence. It has recommended that the um, the penalties are increased, and that you know being involved in exploitation if you sexually assault a child is an aggravating factor on your. Um, 
on your sentence. Uh, but that's not enough. Um, right. I argued that um, that councils uh, and the police and police and crime commissioners, as they were then, I'm not sure what they're called now, um, uh, should set up what I would describe as hit squads to get in um, and disrupt these perpetrators immediately upon receiving information that they are they are operating. But David, if they did the only that, way, if they did that, would they be accused? of targeting the Muslim population, the male Muslim population in these towns. Is that what they're frightened of? Uh, well, there's been a lot made of that, um, and maybe that came into play in Rotherham. Uh, I haven't detected it in other, other areas. Uh, the police are, in my experience, pretty good on the ground, and they, when they see a crime, they just go out and prosecute it. They don't care about the uh, ethnic background. Uh, maybe councillors are a bit more um, more worried about that type of thing. Um, certainly in, in Rotherham, that there was a suspicion of that. Um, but um, these hit squads and getting in early uh, is the solution to a lot of the uh, evidence that came through in the inquiry. I represented um, not only a, a, a lady who gave evidence in the inquiry and who had been abused in Bradford, but I represented an organisation uh, that represents uh, parents of children that were exploited, and they did a, a detailed report um, a couple of years back. They found that responses from the councils and the police are really slow, and th this this um, results in girls, you know, falling further and further into exploitation, um, and the perpetrators basically getting away with it. And the key to me. Is to is for police and councils to get in there early to prevent abusers going on to to, to groom and abuse others. Well, David, um, thank you for giving you thank you for coming on and, and you know you've been on this clearly for a very very long time. Uh, the report is depressing, but it needs to be talked about. And thank you for joining us. Talk about what the Farage. We learned from the Metropolitan Police this morning that the fixed penalty notices that could be given to Downing Street staff and indeed to the Prime Minister will not be made public. We will not be told who has been fined. Well, the Prime Minister's spokesman responded to this by saying, as the Met have made clear, generally speaking, with fi fixed penalty notices, individuals are not published in any way. Obviously, we are all aware of significant public interest regarding the Prime Minister and would always look to provide updates we can on him specifically asked if that meant number 10 would reveal if Johnson was given a fixed penalty notice. The spokesman said, hypothetically, yes. Great, isn't it? Another what the Farage? Well, I can't quite believe what's going on in the British Library because the staff at the British Library are now going to wear badges and the badges will say he, him, or she, her, or they, them. Yes, Pronoun badges are coming in at the British Library just in case somebody goes up to a member of staff and makes some mistake about their sexual orientation, which would lead, of course, to outrage. Why the British Library, which I was told was struggling for funds, has decided to follow Stonewall's advice and spend money on this is completely and utterly beyond me. But there we are. Now, let's get back to your audience reaction should those 40,000 people get their jobs back? Lee says, yes, and compensation too. You won't see Labour giving them any support, though. 
for the few, not the many. Interesting. Another says, yes, that's if they want to rejoin an industry that didn't stand up for their rights. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, who knows to what extent government was lobbied by the firms, by the families that run those care homes. I don't know. Charlie says, of course they should get their jobs back. Bruce says, more like beg to return. Linda says, definitely yes, although not sure they'd want the job now anyway. I'm triple jabbed, but I feel it's a personal choice. So do I. There are not enough independently minded members of parliament in any of the parties in the House of Commons today, but Labour MP Graham Stringer is certainly very independently minded. And I'll be asking him, how's Starmer doing? And what was it like in the House of Commons yesterday? It's that time. The GB News pub is opened. I'm joined on Talking Pints by Graham Stringer, MP. Welcome to Cheers. the programme. Good to see you. Graham, I'm, I've been very critical over the years of, of members of parliament, you know, straight from university, straight into research offices. But you, I mean, you shouldn't be in politics. You worked in industry. I did. I was an anal analytical chemist in the plastics industry for 10 years. A long time ago now, but yeah. Yeah, so you actually had a, you know, you do have a background in the real world. Um, and I guess that's probably shown itself throughout your career. Um, you know, local politics, you know, running Manchester City Council. I'm really interested in what your view on HS2 is, because I keep hearing from politicians in Manchester that HS2 is going to be this great boon for Manchester. What's your take on all of that? Oh, I've always supported HS2. Yeah. It's both about capacity getting people, more people, uh, between the major centres in this country. Uh, and it's also about speed. One of the ways I put it is, if speed didn't matter, capacity didn't matter, and I don't want to be rude to small towns in the northwest of England, but Workington and Barrow would be amazing successes because they're a long way away from everywhere and most places in the world believe that connectivity whether it's by air or mm. rail is important they want to be near other big centers so people can trade do business whatever so i think hs2 okay is an is a, is a no-brainer i worry about the cost of it and i worry whether it yeah. could drive business it's expensive and i wonder whether it could drive it the other way but is it no I, but i want to get your take on it because it does seem that manchester really wants this yeah. and and and, and, and it is expensive, yeah. but it's likely to last for 100 years. Our current rail system has been there for nearly 200 years. You can tell that some days, can't you? <laughs> you can. <laughs> it's been there for nearly 200 years. It's a major investment. So if you discount it over that period, it's not as expensive as it seems. You did local politics for all those years in a very senior position. You've been in the House of Commons now since 1997. Which do you prefer, local politics or national politics? I've worked out an answer to that over the years, and it is that all my best times and worst times are in local government. You're closer to immediate decisions and people and very difficult decisions. It's much more even whether you're a minister or a member of parliament in, in the House of Commons, much more even. Although during the sort of Brexit debates, uh, it didn't feel very even. Well, let's have a think about that. Let's have a look at the Brexit debates, because, you know, the Labour... I mean, everyone forgets this, but it was back in the 70s. It was the Labour Party that believed joining the common market would be bad for British workers. It was going to be a market for big businesses and big banks. I mean, they were right about much of it. And somehow, and somehow, 
was it, was it Kinnock, Blair? Somehow the Labour Party changed, didn't it? It was Thatcher and Delors, really. Because Delors, who was the president of the EU Commission... And a very powerful figure. Yeah, and very intellectually powerful as yes. well. He came along to the TUC, I think in 1988, and said, forget about Thatcher, she's bad for you. We can sort out the industrial relations law in Brussels. And overnight, it changed the Labour movement, and more slowly, uh, the Labour Party to be pro-EEC, as it was then in yeah. the EU. yeah. So by the time the referendum came, it was quite difficult. In fact, I've got a picture here, Graham, of you at a Leave Means Leave event. That's a clip of you. Let, let's, have, let's have a clip, clip of Graham. But what happened was people didn't do as they were told. <laughs> the establishment are still in a state of shock. They can't believe that this extraordinary life uh, that they have been living and that's Cosy for them, not cosy for the rest of us who are not doing as well as we can uh, because we're in the EU. I can't believe that the people saw through uh, the sham that is the EU. So what do you do when that happens? Well, you're all stupid, aren't you? You didn't understand what it was. Well, I went out on the day and talked to people. They weren't angry. People only voted this way because they were poor. Or they were angry. Actually... People had a profound and fundamental sense of democracy. You must have felt very strongly about that issue, because there you were, a leave means leave, <coughs> with people like me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you must have had a lot of stick over this. I, since the 70s, what, that we were just talking about, yeah. I've been... I, I voted in 75 uh, not to join, yeah. and I've never really changed my uh, view on that. So when I was selected as a Member of Parliament, it wasn't a big issue... Uh, in '96, when I was selected. But I made it very clear that I didn't think the EU was a good idea. Uh, so I think in politics, certainly within the Labour Party and probably the Conservative Party in Parliament, if people know you believe in something, you don't get as much stick. The people who get the stick and the criticism are those people who change their views for career purposes yeah. uh, and to, to get on. And people don't like that. If people stick by what they believe in, then people say, well, that's fair enough. But if you bought into the European thing, given your background, you could have climbed the ladder under Blair's premiership. Maybe. I was a minister. I was in the government yeah. uh, for, for three years. I... Uh, I wasn't the greatest minister or whip ever. Uh, I certainly didn't enjoy whipping. It was... <laughs> it's, it's not my natural uh, forte to do that. Um, I, there were things I didn't like about the Blair government. I was extremely glad when we were elected in 97 that there was a Labour government. I was sad, certainly over the first four years, we didn't do more. And then I think the Iraq war was a disaster, both for the Labour Party and the country. And could you see that at the time? Well, I voted against it. Yeah. I didn't see how it would completely destabilise the Middle East. I mean, people don't always realise that the catastrophe in Syria is really the remnants of uh, the Iraqi army. So, And it's, it's spread terrorism uh, and chaos throughout the Middle East, not just there. And destroyed Blair's legacy? Yes. Blair was a very powerful politician, believed in what he believed in, and he tried to, to do it not as quickly enough to start with. But the fact that he didn't tell the whole truth about it, he decided early on, 
uh, that he was going to support Bush and yeah. the Americans, whatever. And actually, the intelligence that he pretended we had uh, didn't uh, materialise. There were no weapons of mass destruction. And that's what he's remembered for. Yeah, I'm I, afraid it is for his, I did a from debate, his perspective. I did a debate in Durham University uh, two or three years ago, and I said, when I went to university, that it's now the same distance away from Iraq as when I went, it was from Suez. Nobody talked about Suez when I went to university. When I went to Durham, there was a packed hall, wanted to yeah. talk about Iraq. Students, if you go into a student's union now... Even getting over 20 years on. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, they still... It, was, talk, it, was, it defines It was quite kind a lot of, of a moment, wasn't it, of a breakdown of trust, I think, between Parliament, government and the people. And perhaps the Brexit result was part of that manifestation. It was. I mean, there, there were a lot. Of, there's been a lot of breaches of trust with the people. The Iraq War was uh, was one. The MPs' expenses did a did a lot of damage. And I think we have a, a genuine problem in this country. I think it's good to be sceptical about politicians and politics uh, politics generally. That's healthy. Yeah. When it turns to cynicism that we don't trust that lot then that is very bad for democracy. And yes. that's what's happening well, with the current afternoon. Prime Minister. I mean, yesterday afternoon was pretty extraordinary stuff, wasn't it? Oh, yes. For, to have the country and virtually the whole of the Commons who don't believe that the Prime Minister tells the truth on a regular basis is extraordinary. Hmm. Absolutely well, extraordinary. Well, the fact that... A police investigation has now become his shield and his cover. I mean, it's almost beyond <laughs> belief. The police who were present <laughs> all the time, because his personal security, the police officers on the door, on down. Of course. Police know what's going on. They don't have to investigate. Everybody knows what's going on. <laughs> it is a waste. Well, I'll tell you what I think should happen, and I've said it publicly. Labour should put down a motion of no confidence. Uh, we'll lose. Uh, because we haven't got the votes. But those Tory MPs who are saying that they they don't trust the Prime Minister, it gives them the chance to show it. And it also gives the Labour Party yeah. the chance to show these people want uh, a known liar to continue as Prime Minister. Strong words, Graham, but shared by many people in the country today and quite a few in the Conservative Party now were saying it as well. Interesting. Starmer... You know, I thought there were one or two lines that Starmer delivered yesterday that were quite wounding on a personal level, and it was a different kind of Starmer. I don't think he's got much charisma. I don't think he shows much humour. But I just wonder, are we underestimating the extent to which he's unifying the Labour Party? Because we've had years of the Labour Party tearing itself to pieces. I just wonder, is... You know, you've watched this for decades. Is Labour gearing itself up to perhaps try and win an election? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, I think it. I think we are. Um, we've had one of the two best prime ministers of the last century was Clem Attlee, who was said not to have much of a personality, mm -hmm. but along with Churchill, he was probably uh, those two in very diff very different ways were were great uh, prime ministers. So you don't have to have a big uh, personality. What Starmer is doing is giving the Labour Party members a belief that we can win. Uh, we're sort of varying a bit between seven and ten points ahead in the opinion polls now. We should be further ahead, but that's a good start. And Blair wasn't popular when he was first elected with large 
as, as leader with large chunks of the Labour Party. But once people believed he was going to win... It all changes, yeah. And yeah. Then, so people so rolling behind. Just, it's not a policy just, issue, it's a yeah. belief in victory. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. And Graham, finally, one thing you did disagree with Blair on was climate change. You are a climate change sceptic. I'm a scientist. I mean, you're happy to destroy the world. You don't want us to have a future. I'm a scientist. I've looked at the science. I've talked to top scientists uh, across the spectrum. I've been to uh, the Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, where there's a lot of work done. I've been to the Met Office and talked to them. And when you actually talk to the scientists who are doing that work, and you say, but there's a huge margin of error here, they agree. They talk scientist to scientist. I've talked to members of the Royal uh, Society who say they've looked at it and they don't think it justifies uh, A, the policies that are being followed, but the, the view that there's going to be a pretty imminent catastrophe. So I've got two problems. One, I think the action we're taking when we're only 1% of the, mm. the production of the world's carbon dioxide are making the country weaker for no purpose. And they're making poor people poorer and eventually colder. Uh, and, and secondly, I don't think the science uh, justifies it. We, I, I listened to <coughs> one of Obama's uh, science advisors who's just written a, a book on it. Yeah. And he's, if you went out there, people would say storms in the world are uh, getting worse. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're not. Yeah. There is no evidence. <laughs> IPCC. So there's all this catastrophism going about. Yeah. And... The evidence isn't there. Graham, there are issues I will agree with you on, there are issues I will disagree with you on, but it's great to have somebody in Parliament who's independently minded as you are, and thank you for joining us on thank Talking Parts. Right, we're approaching the last couple of minutes of the programme. It is time, of course, for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in. Mickey asks me, do you think there has been a party culture at number 10 or is it entirely associated with Boris? Well, some of the newspaper reports suggest that, you know, there was still sort of wine Fridays when Theresa May was there. I kind of think that Boris has been pretty weak with them. Um, in Gordon Brown's day, was there much boozing in Number 10, do you think, or Tony Blair's day? If there was, I wasn't invited. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was invited to the odd uh, party for... Labour MPs or the government in Tony Blair's days, but it wasn't a huge boozing culture. No, no, certainly not there. No, and you know what, folks? I like a drink. You all know that. But drinking in the office on a regular basis, not good. Alex asks: Should broadcasters be encouraged to use degrees Fahrenheit during weather reports? What do you think, Graham? <laughs> I still, as a scientist, if I'm doing science, I think in centigrade. As a person who wants to know the weather, if it's 72 outside. I understand that. Yeah. And the British, of course, being what they are, we talk in centigrade when it's cold and Fahrenheit when it's warm. And we, all, <laughs> we all do that. Cathy yeah. asks, if you were in Parliament today, what question would you have asked Boris? Oh, I, I would have asked him, you, you know, why didn't he, at the start of all of this, rather than saying there was no party, the rules were followed, I'd have asked him, Prime Minister, wouldn't it have been better to hold your hands up in the first place, and be honest with people. Last question. Linda asks, can we get out of the ECHR or are we tied to it? A sovereign country can do what it likes. That applied to Brexit. It applies to the ECHR. I, I think if we're ever going to deal with a channel crisis, which is about to get much bigger and much worse this year, 
We're going to have to change our relationship and leave ECHR. 